You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about business and innovation. This session was originally broadcast on July 21st, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay, hi there. Welcome to an episode of Q&A about business innovation, and we're trying a new piece, Managing Life. So we've been, I've been off for a few weeks because we've been doing our annual summer education programs, um, our summer school for uh, college age, graduate school, et cetera, folk, and our high school summer camp for high school students. And we also had this year a middle school camp. Um, and the result of this was uh, about 100 really interesting projects done using science, technology, ideas that we have. Um, and I get to do my annual moments of what I call extreme professoring, which means helping come up with, uh, well, in this case, 100 and something uh, unique original projects and then uh, helping to see those get done. So I've been a little bit off the air in terms of live streams for the last few weeks, but um, now we're back and um, today talking about business innovation and managing life. All right, let's see, we have a bunch of questions here. There's one from Chef here. What could good came out of the pandemic from a business or recruiting point of view? That's interesting. I mean, I myself have been a work from home person for more than 30 years. I, um, uh, I actually realized that even when I was uh, supposedly, uh, you know, I was a professor and I, I started another company long ago, um, but even when from sort of the earliest days of working sort of in the professoring business and so on, I found myself working from home most of the time. Um, I don't know quite why, I just found it more peaceful. I mean, back in the day, I remember this is in the early 1980s, um, I was, used computers all the time and I would just uh, dial up my phone and use this kind of acoustic coupling technology that was the way that you communicated between computers um, back in those days. And I would have a, a terminal at home connected to an acoustic coupler through the phone, and I was just amazed at the, the, the reliability of the phone system that I could literally leave that connected for months at a time um, and uh, without any glitches. But uh, I've been doing the kind of work from home thing for a long time. And then in, in 1991, I started my current company in late 1986. And in 1991, I, I went sort of pure, be on the other side of the country, work from home and using telecommuting technology of various kinds. The thing that for me, and so for, for me, this pandemic was kind of uh, a business as usual kind of situation. For me personally, at least also our company is very geo-distributed. And so probably half of our employees at least are um, sort of are work from home type folk. One of the challenges actually for us is we have um, our company headquarters is in Illinois and we have lovely office space and it's been very depopulated and we're sort of having a hard time defining what 
how it should get used and um, uh, how much of it we really need and all those kinds of things. Um, I think it's, we, we sort of had a thing that was just introduced, um, which was, we've got all this nice office space and it was built out at different times because we've basically been in the same building for, when is it, since, since 1991, actually, or even 1990, um, sort of gradually taking over different floors of this building and so on. The building was actually built sort of around us as anchor tenants a long time ago. Um, the, uh, but, but because the building has been sort of built out at different times, there are pieces of our office space which come from different eras, the era where everybody wanted to be in an office with walls, the era when people wanted cubicles, the era when people wanted very open office space, uh, different eras, so to speak. And so what we realized is as people come back into the office, we should kind of give them the choice. You know, you can pick the 19, you know, 1990s, the 2000s, the 2010s vintage, so to speak, area. And we had put a big effort on having groups that were doing related things be physically in, in close by office space. But I think what we realized recently and sort of an experiment for us is just don't worry about that. Just pick your office space based on where you kind of like the environment. And if it mixes people up between different groups, that may actually be a good thing, not a bad thing. So it's an experiment. We just started, started trying. Um, I think that uh, for me, one of the things that uh, was a change in this pandemic is I had used web conferencing, even Zoom, as a matter of fact, uh, for, for many, many years. Well, I'd used web conferencing for many years, Zoom for a few years. And, but I always did screen sharing plus audio only, no video. Every time I tried using video, I found in the past that it sort of killed meetings because I would be, you know, there'd be some meeting and there'd be some people on video and you kind of tell the people weren't paying attention. And it's like, oh, you know, that kind of kills the mood of the meeting. And in fact, in, in many cases, I had had a meeting where let's say we have 20 people in it. And it turns out most of the time, most of those people don't have anything particularly to contribute to the meeting. But if you have them there, then it's the case that the, the, when something comes up that's relevant to them, you can kind of say, oh, so-and-so, what do you think? And they'll kind of wake up and, and you might have to repeat the question, but that's a pretty fast process compared to other ways to do things. But, but it had been kind of audio only. And that was also good because when there were a few people who were actually in a room somewhere and other people remote, the audio only thing didn't really discriminate very much between the people who were together in a room versus the people who were remote on audio. But in this pandemic, there's been so much use of video. We, I've started finding myself using video more. And it is true that there are situations in which you're kind of getting more information by video than you would uh, purely through audio. But I think the thing that has been sort of the compensating factor is the use of, uh, of, of um, waiting rooms. Um, in things like Zoom and so on, where there'll be a meeting, but there'll be a whole bunch of people who are in a waiting room who are not expected, you know, who are off doing whatever they're doing. And, um, uh, and then they're only kind of, uh, uh, you know, you kind of let them in 
if they're really relevant to that particular segment of the meeting. And that's sort of, I think, the sort of compensating feature to the other approach of having everybody be there in audio form, but some people not paying attention, so to speak. I think the other thing that, that I found is that probably our use of internal uh, chat, we happen to use Rocket Chat as our internal kind of messaging system. Um, I personally don't use it very much, um, but uh, that's just me being leading an, a, an assistanted life, so to speak. Um, but around the company, it's used a lot. And it's been the case that it's working ever better to have people, if they're not in the meeting, we, we, okay, first thing we do is we have this concept of people being on call for a meeting. So there might be 10 people who are in the meeting and another 10 people who are on call for the meeting, which means if they get a chat message saying, can you join it now? They're expected to actually show up and join it you know, very quickly. And uh, that works well. Um, and um, so anyway, one, one change has been that kind of um, that kind of thing, in terms of of people and recruiting and so on, you know, we already had a very geo distributed culture, so it doesn't really make much difference to us. The onboarding of new people during the pandemic was, I would say, a little bit challenging, as it probably has been for everybody. Um, although we certainly brought in new people during that period of time, um, I think that uh, uh, there were. There definitely have been people who had a much harder time working sort of at home than they would have done in the office. And I know um, uh, that's as we started to open up the office and give the possibility of people being in the office, there were people like, I really need to work in the office. I can't, I can't work at home type thing for all kinds of different reasons, uh, the, including, I would say, largely kind of just psychology of if I want to be in, in this workplace environment, uh, to be able to kind of do my work well. I mean, I suppose my sort of anti-version of that for myself has been that I just work better in sort of a completely silent, you know, un, uh, undistracted situation. I mean, I, I can't even like listen to music and so on. Um, it just distracts me too much. I have to actually be kind of in, in silence. In fact, I, I, for a long time, uh, in my kind of home office setup, I had uh, had a fancy computer that I'm using, and the fancy computer has lots of fan noise and so on. And so I actually had it set up so that it's like there's a there's a conduit where the, all the wires go from where I have my desk to a, an adjacent room where the actual computer has been sitting. Finally, that stopped because computers, powerful computers, in the last probably two or three years, have not had actual spinning fans and they've been silent. So uh, I'm able to have the computer in the same room as me, but, but in the past, I'd always found that very distracting and I kind of wanted the, the silent environment. Uh, I'm not sure that that, um, uh, I, I'm sure one gets used to anything, but for me, uh, I've always found it easier to be in this environment where there's sort of nothing else going on and no other, no other humans uh, uh, anywhere to be, to be seen or heard, so to speak. But um, uh, Let's see, from a business point of view, we were very worried about a lot of our customers. A lot of, we have a lot of uh, universities as customers, a lot of other kinds of customers. Uh, what we found from a business point of view, there was quite a bit of, of confusion of things like, well, 
there's a purchase order needs to be sent in, but whoops, we weren't set up to send those things in remotely with people working from home. And so, you know, payments got delayed and things like that. Uh, I would say we still don't really know the impact of sort of the pandemic longer term and the various economic consequences of the pandemic on our market. But generally for us, I always make the claim, which seems to have been supported by the last 30, the third of a century of history, that sort of actually we do best when there are problems in the economy, because we're basically in the business of providing tools to help people think about things. And people think harder when things are not quite as economically uh, sort of wonderful, so to speak. Now, we also, as part of the sort of pandemic, we, we sort of were able to sort of move fairly quickly on for some of our customers, like universities, for example, that had all kinds of special issues of, of all kinds of online kinds of things. We were happy to be able to, to act pretty quickly to provide sort of refactor various products and things and uh, licensing arrangements to make it easier for those folk. And I think that's been... Uh, we felt good about doing it and people seem to have appreciated the fact that we were able to do it. So I think that part has, has worked well. In terms of, do we see, you know, I, I think that there's been a certain, uh, I, I've seen one thing, uh, we've had a lot of long-term employees, which means we've actually had people who've been with their company multiple decades and some of them are heading for retirement age. And I have seen just recently a wave of retirements, which I, I kind of suspect might have been timed uh, associated with kind of the pandemic and, and, and so on. I don't really know for sure. I think that um, in terms of, and I also could see that there were people, um, you know, a few people even that I worked directly with who really were having a hard time in, in the pandemic and who've sort of uh, re-examined their lives and so on as a result of that. And I don't know how much of that is still to come. Um, and uh, that will be interesting to see. Uh, I, I like to think for our company in particular, we are a company with a very definite uh, and ambitious mission, so to speak, which means that for people who, who care about those kinds of things, uh, we we tend to be a, an attractive kind of place, but uh, those are those are a few thoughts about the pandemic and so on. Oh, there's a question here from Aaron. Uh, can I talk more about what Sergey Brin did when he interned for our company? Apparently, his resume reads: I developed a code analysis and extraction tool for the Mathematica source code. Well, let's see. When was that? That must have been. 1993, maybe. Um, Sergey was sort of in between college and graduate school. I think he'd been at University of Maryland and he was going to Stanford. Um, and uh, he was an intern with us for a summer. And actually the project that he was working on was an early version of our effort to kind of break out what we would now call Wolfram language from our Mathematica product. And the original concept had been to have a system which was kind of the pure sort of programming language-like functionality of the system without kind of the algorithmic capabilities of the system. And so we were trying to kind of factor the code, uh, factor the source code, so that 
it will be possible to kind of make up, make this very slim trim binary that was kind of just the symbolic language part of our system and not uh, all of the algorithmic capabilities. And so I guess Sergey's project and, and the, the quote from his resume kind of reminds me of this um, had to do with that process of, of separating, of kind of being able to factor, modularize the code to make that possible. And actually around that time, we also had a bunch of efforts to kind of modularize things so that we could make kind of custom versions of our product with different kinds of capabilities. In the end, that idea of kind of separating things didn't work out that well because it became clear that in a sense, the great strength of our system is the ability to call on all these different areas. You know, you think you're doing some piece of numerics, but actually you need graph theory and algebraic computation and computational geometry and so on. Or you think you're doing something that's just about layout on the screen, but actually you need combinatorial optimization and you need computational geometry to be able to figure out how to, how to arrange those things on the screen. So this idea of sort of breaking off the um, kind of the, the sort of the core language part of things separate from sort of the algorithmic and computational knowledge part of the system was in the end, I think, not a particularly good idea. And one that I kind of, as I understood that it wasn't such a good idea, which took a while, um, I, that made me realize the real value of the whole computational language and the sort of the, the integration of everything as this sort of computational way of describing the world. But Sergey's project, um, I don't know the details of, uh, of exactly what was done there, but this whole code modularization effort is something that has helped us a lot in the management of the code base. Uh, I'm no doubt ever since, I don't know all the details of, of what the, the uh, sort of lineage of, of, every, of all the tools that we have is. I do remember though that um, uh, Sergey, uh, I found this piece of mail actually, uh, fairly recently I sent it to Sergey actually, where it's like a, you're thinking about making this sort of language-like thing, you know, everything that um, uh, you should really make it a free thing and you know that's that's the way to do sort of technology business is to make stuff that's free. And so when Sergey started Google, and um, it was kind of like, uh, and they're going to make this stuff free. I was like, really? Is that really a good business model? Is that really something that's going to work? And, and early on at Google, I think they had a a whole bunch of um, sort of uh, well, we're really going to make make it work with this or that, you know. Uh, way of monetizing it and the the idea of, of monetizing with ads was not the number one idea it was an idea that sort of emerged um, and I think that the I mean I, I was very much in the you should you know you should have a premium version of this service and you know I'll subscribe and other people would subscribe but but that never happened um, so but I think I think also um, there was a, a whole discussion about the naming of the sort of language that component that we will break off. And, and that was one of the things that really held back the process actually was not having a great name for this. We, we considered a name like lingua, which is sort of like language, but or like tongue in Latin, but it's too weird. Sergey, I think was pushing for the name thema on the grounds that if you took the word mathematica, thema was kind of the heart of that word and was also kind of a nice word on its own. Um, but again, that uh, that was not what ended up happening. And much later, uh, only what, five, six, seven years ago, 
uh, we finally kind of defined uh, Wolfram language to be sort of the whole computational language and the sort of the thing that is kind of the core representation of our technology, um, along with, uh, with, with its various deployments in things like Mathematica, Wolfram Desktop, Wolfram Cloud, Wolfram Engine, and so on. So that's a little bit um, on that. I remember when Sergey was, was, uh, was finishing his internship saying, well, what are you going to do next? And he said, I'm going to go off and study databases for graduate school. And I was like, oh, you know, really? You know, databases just don't seem like that interesting an area. What is there really to, to learn about databases and so on? So I don't know whether you consider web search a database problem, but, but arguably I was, I was very wrong in the there's nothing interesting to do in that direction. Although I think the actual specific kind of um, uh, projects he worked on might not have been um, uh, the, the ones that, that led to the whole kind of, I, I think there was a, um, what was it? Um, some kind of uh, uh, analysis of, of market baskets and, and um, uh, the, the, the searching the web and so on, which perhaps came out of database kinds of things. I'm not sure. Let's see. Okay, there's a question from Sleepy here. Is there a general rule for deciding when to outsource some aspects of my startup, especially if it's on a low budget? You know, my principle about companies is on day one, the CEO kind of has to do everything. And gradually, as the company sort of grows up, you can find people to do these various functions that sort of the CEO understands. And perhaps you can find people to do them better than the CEO can do them. I have been, I'm not a big fan of outsourcing things because I feel like as soon as you outsource things, you don't really understand them. I think that in, uh, and I, I think it's one of these things where uh, in, in my company, for example, it's very kind of vertically integrated. We have pretty much everything in-house. We outsource almost nothing. The only kinds of things that we outsource are things where it's like, it's just going to happen once, or it's just going to happen rarely, and it needs very special expertise. We've even occasionally done that with some development kinds of things when it's like, we are making a connector to some outside technology that we're only going to need for this one connector, and we don't care about it for anything else. Um, but, uh, or occasionally, um, things in various kinds of legal related areas and so on, but generally we haven't done that. Now, you know, if you take an area like graphic design, where we have a strong in-house group that we've had for a very, very long time, how does that really work? Well, the fact is there's enough work to do in a company of our size, at least that the graphic design department will never be idle, so to speak. If there, if there isn't a high priority thing that just came in last week, there are endless lower priority things that are just waiting in, in line to be done. Now, if we were a significantly smaller company, there might be a lumpier kind of utilization of something like a graphic design group. And there, but you know, there's tremendous value to having this sort of the designers in-house where they really understand the company, they understand the product, they uh, kind of, uh, there's a lot that you don't have to explain, you know, again and again and again to, to people to get projects done and done well. And I think there's a more sort of, uh, there's, there's more sort of accountability in, and involvement when people are in-house than when they're sort of contracted out. 
Now, there are things I would say that one rule, I suppose, is for our company, there's a lot that we build ourselves and where we have very in-house kinds of things. And there's some stuff where uh, we're doing something where we do the same as every other company in the universe, I might say, does. You know, areas in various kinds of finance-like areas and so on, where we're just pretty typical. There's nothing special about our payroll system. There's nothing special about um, uh, other kinds of, I don't know, uh, th things like that, where we're just doing the same as uh, sort of your average company is doing. Those kinds of things make a lot more sense to me to effectively outsource in one way or another. So, I mean, I think it's the things where it's very lumpy in terms of, of how, how often you need it, or it needs very specialized expertise that you really just don't want to invest in in-house, um, or it's something, um, uh, you know, that, that, that's, um, uh, that's, the, that's the kind of thing. And I think um, uh, the, um, uh, you know, that there are, uh, now having said that, Sometimes there are things where you think you might be able to just use the generic, and then you discover, well, actually, your business really depends on not being so generic. I mean, for us, one of the more notable examples is our ERP system. For many years, I don't know, 30-something years, probably, we used generic ERP systems, and they got more and more frustrating. You know, these are big you know, built a long time ago, sort of traditionally architected systems. We had, you know, we had an increasing sort of group of uh, druids or something who were who were taking care of this this strange um, uh, sort of creature. And for example, in the case of the ERP system, I got absolutely fed up with hearing, oh, 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 uh, you know, we. Uh, it'll take us a month to get these new products out because it's so difficult to have them inserted into our ERP system. And it's like, that's crazy. So we decided a few years ago, we're just going to build our own. And we've been building ERP system using our symbolic language and so on. And it's great. Um, it's not yet deployed and it's been several years. So, you know, I can't, well, it's not, no pieces of it are deployed, but the full thing is not yet deployed. Um, and, uh, uh, once we've deployed it, we will have a thing that is completely excessive for our use in a sense. It's a wonderful new generation ERP type system. Um, it, uh, uh, we should spin off a company to go do something great with it. It's really not our core business. It's just something enabled by our business. And um, that's something which you might have thought we were kind of generic in dealing with, but we're not so generic because we have complicated software licensing and cloud and consumer and all kinds of different things. And so that's a place where we really, it, it's very convenient to have our own system. And we also have uh, sort of complicated international and reporting and so on kinds of issues that uh, make, it, make it really tipped it over into having our own system. I think another question is, you know, to what extent do you have uh, IT systems in-house versus in the cloud? I have to say my general principle has been, if your company is more than about 500 people, uh, it makes more sense, unless you have very lumpy usage of things, to have the systems in-house than to have them out in the cloud. And uh, we were just looking, actually just today, I happened to be, uh, uh, we were looking at email systems where we have an in-house solution, not our own technology, 
but something which is an on-premise solution, so to speak. Uh, and we've been thinking about sort of putting it in the cloud and it's like, well, you know what? We've already got people who contend this. We already understand it well. And it's, you know, we don't really want the sort of supply chain exposure from having it in the cloud, given the particular tools business that we're in and, and so on. So, you know, let's just keep doing it on-premise in-house. That would make, that would be a crazy thing to do if we were a much smaller company than we are, because, you know, you don't want of your 10 employees, you don't want one of them managing your, you know, email system or your CRM system or something like this. Um, so I would say that, that uh, uh, look, my general rule would be the, it, um, uh, uh, the general rule, I mean, it's also worth realizing when you are using cloud providers, if your usage is lumpy, you will come out ahead financially. If your usage is predictable, you, uh, in terms of just like compute resources and so on, I think it's fairly certain you will not come out ahead. And that's why, for example, we do, we, we had had some of our sort of cloud capabilities were on outside cloud providers and we sort of pulled them all back in-house. And we'd always had Wolfram Alpha, for example, in-house because at the time when we built it out, it wasn't realistic to put that in sort of cloud compute systems. Um, and so we had to build out our own colos and things like that for that anyway. And that's, so we've had that infrastructure. Um, and it is, it is definitely cheaper for us, given that we have rather predictable usage levels and so on. Um, there's a question here, another one from Erin here. How do you organize your day's activities? Um, do you like to work from a daily to-do list towards weekly goals? Uh, just get in the zone, see what you can do. Well, unfortunately or fortunately, I lead a fairly structured life. So, you know, I have a definite calendar. I have a person whose who main role is to do scheduling for me and you know, I have a, a very definite structure which of meetings that I do, which are almost always working meetings. They're almost always meetings where the objective is to produce something, sometimes to review a project, to make decisions, to produce something and so on. And so a lot of my day is divided up into half hour, one hour kind of slots of doing those kinds of things. Now, I, I uh, in sort of a... a oh, I don't know, a concession to something or other, the first uh, about two hours of my day, I will typically be walking in some form. So I'm either like walking on a treadmill with computers in front of me and, you know, on the phone and doing sort of web, web conferencing meetings, um, or sometimes uh, when it's nice weather, like it is today, for example, where I am uh, walking outside and doing those meetings while walking around and uh, just... Um, uh, being, you know, it's like, well, I'm not going to share the screen. Somebody else has to share the screen and, and I'll look at it. And that uh, in sort of the, the structure of my days, it's kind of, it's known. And I'm afraid it even is down to the level of knowing what the weather is going to be like. And therefore, whether I'm going to be able to walk outside and so whether I'm going to have a computer and a keyboard in front of me or not, I, I kind of almost am embarrassed to admit that level of kind of babysitting in a and assistanted life, but but um, that's that's what I've been doing. So the first, um, so my most of my day is is quite structured with particular meetings and things, which which I'm defining. You know, I'm all the time. I'm sending. I want to have a meeting about this. Please get this scheduled when the relevant people are available, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. 
Um, so that's that's a large part of my main day. Then I tend to uh, I sort of break off for a dinner period when um, I'm also uh, 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 and and sort of in the interstitial time. I'm kind of dealing with a large pile of email that I get every day. Um, then kind of the evening time, I sort of go back to work and, and work through my evening, so to speak, usually. Um, and uh, then I'm typically, sometimes I'll have some meetings then. If there's an intense project going on, there'll certainly be meetings then. Um, and sometimes, I'm working on the next project that's come up. And I'm usually not working as a personal thing on more than one or two projects at a given time. And I usually try to, like if I'm writing something or I'm doing some piece of research or something, I will usually try to intensely do that for a period of a week or two, uh, or whatever it takes. Um, in the case of our physics project, for example, I was intensely doing that for about four or five months. In the case of my new kind of science book, I was kind of intensely doing that for 10 years, but I don't think I'll ever do something like that again. Um, the, uh, but, but, you know, I, I'll tend to be staying on that one project for a certain period of time. Now, I'll also have random to-do list items of do this, do that. I have to say that despite many sort of efforts to modernize and digitalize, I still write those things on a piece of paper. And I have a very definite, I get a certain satisfaction out of actually, out of, um, you know, I've written them on a piece of paper, I have this very definite way of crossing out the things that I've done. And I have this sort of crosshatch thing that I do, when it's partly done, or it's kind of out of largely out of my hands, but not completely over. And I get a certain satisfaction out of once everything's crossed out on that piece of paper, you know, I've, I've kind of set things up behind my desk, I have a bunch of drawers, and I, I, I usually I don't throw away pieces of paper that I've written stuff on. I, I'm enough of an informational pack rat that I keep all those things. Although I have to say, I'm not filling stuff up with paper very often. I just filled one banker's box, which I noticed had lasted me for three and a half years or something of random pieces of paper that I'd written on and so on. But uh, my, my scheme is, you know, I have these uh, drawers behind my desk and they're, they, um, uh, they have little slots at the top, so you don't have to open the drawer. You just you just post the piece of paper through the through the the top of the drawer, and it it sits there, and it it probably will kind of be unlooked at for the rest of time, so to speak. But uh, uh, just occasionally, it's it's useful to have information on on kind of what one was doing when, and in more detail than from my calendars and and from you know I capture all the all the things I type and all those kinds of things, but, but sometimes it's useful to have those things. Um, and I figure, why not keep it? it? It's very cheap to keep, and you never know what value it will have subsequently. But so for me, I will tend to have the sort of personal strange satisfaction of having checked off everything on my piece of paper. And then if there are a few things that are left over, I'll literally rewrite them on another piece of paper um, because, uh, and sometimes I'll, I'll get them done if there's something comparatively simple, just because I can't be bothered to rewrite them on the next piece of paper, and I figure I better get, just get them done now. So that's what I tend to do, and I, I tend to end up, you know, I, I keep track of sort of the email backlog that I develop, and, and sometimes that'll be thousands of emails. And, and typically I do this thing, you know, every, every day I will at least attempt to compact my email, which means go through it and look at 
uh, what, what pieces I can immediately respond to or immediately delete. And then there will be other pieces that are more complicated, which have to get left for a better time. And I have to say, I, you know, sometimes that compacted email can sit for a long time. I mean, I just responded to one piece from like 11 years ago or something. I know that's, that's way too long. And uh, uh, that's, uh, you know, I, I, that, that, that's in the tail of the distribution, let's be clear. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, I like to kind of at least remove the things which are easy to deal with. And then I'll tend to go through sometimes on weekend days, sometimes at other times, I'll tend to go through sort of the, the grinding of, of other email. And the problem is that once my email has been compacted, typically every response is going to take on average, maybe 10, 15 minutes. Um, so, you know, by the time it's hundreds and hundreds of pieces, I know that's gonna take a long time. And I have to say, one of the things that I've sometimes done is I kind of leave it for, oh, if I'm feeling tired, I'll go and do a bunch of this email processing. Um, and that's, um, uh, I'm, you know, touch wood, I'm happy to say I don't, that's, you know, my, 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 I'm organizing myself well enough that I don't have very many days when I'm like, oh, I'm really tired and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that that um, will normally happen if for some reason I'm like, uh, you know, sleep schedule is perturbed or something, but, but um, uh, tends not to happen so much. But I think, um, um, uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I think what I have found is, for example, one of the big skills that I've developed over the years is I'm, I'm, I've gotten much better at context switching. So, you know, there's a meeting about this. Immediately after that, there's a meeting about this. And I seem to manage to, and it's a learned skill because I didn't have it earlier in my life. I can kind of switch pretty immediately from, oh, we're doing a discussion about, you know, quantum computing to we're doing a, um, uh, you know, this this live stream to we're doing this to we're doing that. And I, I seem to be able to switch. The one thing I find it hard to switch is between kind of what I might call talking meetings and writing meetings. Uh, when it's a question of when I'm actually going to sit down and sort of creatively craft a piece of text or something like that, I find it uh, that for that I need to kind of be somewhat more in some kind of zone. Um, it doesn't take very long to get into that, maybe five, 10 minutes, but it doesn't, um, but it's not something where I can as instantly go from this topic to that topic, so to speak. Um, uh, maybe it's something more to learn. The other thing I find when I'm writing things, and, and that's often a way that I organize my thoughts is by writing stuff. And usually I, I by the time I bother to write it, I figure I might as well post it and send it out to the world. Um, but uh, what I find there is that it's really quite important to finish a section when I have one sort of run of writing. If I have that little piece at the end of the section left over and I come back a day or two later and I'm like, I'm gonna do this again. It's like, well, as I read the thing again, I'm thinking I'm in a slightly different kind of state of mind and I end up changing everything. It's a big waste of time. And I find also when I come back to a document and I sort of have to do surgery on the document, that's a super time waster. And often I introduce horrible crazinesses into the document because I didn't really read it carefully enough. And I just said, oh, I should change this sentence here without realizing that two sentences later, I was going to have already said the thing that I was just changing that sentence to say and so on. I also have noticed in terms of organizing my sort of activities that 
I have a decent memory, but there's a certain level of detail that I can only remember for a certain amount of time. So if there's a meeting about some topic and it's going to come back again in a week, there's a certain set of things I can remember. It's going to come back in two days. I'm really like, I remember exactly where we left off and we can just, you know, just dig back into it. I find that, uh, but if it's a week, there's a little bit more degradation. If it's, you know, a month or two, it's like, well, yeah, I can more or less remember it, but let me see the notes and so on. And I'll remember the high points, but I won't remember all the details. And that can have an effect in terms of thinking about how to kind of pace different kinds of things with projects and so on, that sort of the worst case is something where it's like, well, you're picking it up again once every three months. That's, that's okay for reviewing things. It's really bad for making sort of creative progress on a project. Um, let's see. There's a question from, I'm, I'm, I'm skipping around here, a lot, of, a lot of interesting questions from M. Rector. Is it more important to be a value or to have a valuable network of connections? Well, depends on for what purpose. You know, it depends on what you're interested in. I mean, for me, I like actually producing stuff. I, I like actually making things and creating things and so on. That's, that's a, you know, a big fulfilling activity for me. I also enjoy people. And so I like to interact with a whole range of different kinds of people. And I, and I like learning things from people. But I would say for me, it's more important to be a producer, so to speak, of things than specifically to be sort of connected to other people. Now, in terms of if you want to sort of make something happen, well, in my life experience, the best way to make something happen is to do it yourself. However good your connections, whatever, you know, whoever you know and whatever, it's always there's a degradation from the what you can do yourself versus what can you get somebody else to do, so to speak. In terms of sort of having a good network, I have ended up, I think, with a rather excellent network over the course of, oh, now probably 50 years of network connecting. And how does that happen? Well, it happens because like, I still know a bunch of the people I knew in elementary school, even though that was like 50 years ago. And you know, they've gone on to do all kinds of interesting things and uh, uh, actually, the terrible thing is that a bunch of them are retiring and so on, but they've done fancy, uh, you know, big, big jobs in the world, so to speak. Um, but it's, it's something so, you know, for me, it's like the network, it gradually accumulates. I mean, unfortunately, people, people die and so on. And, and that's the main uh, sort of thing that reduces my network, so to speak. But you know, I've, I've been sort of progressively accreting a network of, of very uh, diverse collection of people in, in all sorts of different uh, areas uh, for, for a long time. And, and I found particularly because I do a lot of stuff with younger folk uh, through our various education programs and, and so on. And because I, I kind of uh, enjoy, well, mentoring the two crowds of the CEO crowd and the and the and the kids crowd, um, that um, uh, that I've sort of found that I've been interestingly re replenishing my network across a very wide range of ages, um, and that's something that that I like a lot. I think that um, 
uh, it is, you know, I would say it's great to have a sort of excellent network of connections. I would say that it is, for me, more interesting in terms of keeping my life interesting and getting interesting ideas and having sort of interesting conversations than it is saying, oh, let me reach out to that person. That person can do me a favor in this or that place. Um, I would say that, you know, I ask for very few favors, so to speak. Um, and that the sort of trade in those kinds of things exists. And, and my point of view is there are things where, you know, somebody will say, oh, can you introduce me to person X? Well, if it makes sense, then sure. If it doesn't make sense, I'll say it doesn't make sense. And if it's, uh, um, uh, you know, if it's somebody who says, oh, you know, can you help so-and-so get a job at your company or some other place? It's like, look, sometimes those recommendations are just terrific and we get excellent people from that. And sometimes it just doesn't make sense. And it's like, you can kind of open the door um, and that's a, that's a reasonable thing to do, so to speak. Uh, you're not sort of asking for, uh, it's, it's kind of the, the network is more just, well, there's a piece of connectivity here that helps in, in raising the question rather than in, uh, you know, the answer has got to be such and such. But I would say that having a, uh, you know, maintaining a network of people, uh, for me, it's a very fulfilling and good thing. And it's something where it does take some effort. You know, I send when I write pieces that I've about different things and I know, oh, there's th this set of people who might be interested in this piece. I'll send it to them. And that's a way of kind of staying in touch. It's kind of the, the intellectual analog of sending out Christmas cards or something. But, uh, it, but, you know, it's something where I might not send something to somebody for several years. And then it's like, I realize, oh, this will be interesting to this person. And so I send them that. And that's kind of a way of, of staying in touch and, and, and so on. And, you know, I might, I might add a note that asks about something that's going on or, or whatever else. But I found that it takes, uh, at some level, you know, and I find this with people who, who I know as well, you don't have to see the person every week to kind of stay very much in touch with them. I mean, it could even be, you know, there are people where I, I haven't seen them in decades and I sort of reconnect and it's like we just went on where we left off, so to speak. And I think that's more often the experience. And sometimes people say, oh, I can't contact that person. I haven't been in touch with them for 20 years. My observation is, and observation of people where they've sort of taken my advice, just send the mail. You know, occasionally they will have gone off in some direction in life where they don't want to hear from you or they think they're, they're you know, they're, they're off thinking about other kinds of things or they're too busy with this or that thing. But generally, the experience is people are like, oh, that's nice, you know, cool, whatever. I mean, you know, I'm constantly hearing from people I have not heard from in, in many decades. And uh, sometimes it, I'm a little embarrassed because I don't remember them as well as I might. And I fortunately, I have pretty good records, so I can usually uh, pull that stuff up. But um, it's, uh, you know, I, I would say in terms of sort of quality of life and so on, at least for me, and I'm a person who, who does like people, um, this thing about sort of maintaining a network and kind of keeping it alive is really a worthwhile thing. And I suppose, uh, you know, I don't use social network kinds of things very much for that purpose. You know, I, I use LinkedIn to connect to people I've actually met. Um, I don't connect to people I haven't actually met. And that's sort of a, a good way of, of kind of making it be a meaningful contact list to me. Um, 
I haven't really used Facebook seriously. And in fact, recently, somewhat amusingly, a few weeks ago, I got this message from Facebook saying, we've blocked you. We don't think we are who you say you are, which I have to say is a bit of an, uh, you know, I don't know if it's an AI or human goof, because it's like, come on, guys, I've had a Facebook account for however many years. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not too hard to see the continuity of those things. Um, so, uh, but I, and I think I still, I think my Facebook account is still blocked. So if I were, I was not using Facebook as a serious way to sort of keep up with the network. And well, now I'm not using it at all. Um, let's see, other questions here. Um, There's a question from Mikhail uh, about sequencing genomes and 23andMe and ancestry and so on. Um, have I used that to find relatives? I have not. Um, I, I suppose I, um, uh, I kind of think I know enough about kind of the, the, the genealogical tree, so to speak, um, that uh, I haven't, haven't um, uh, and, I, and I'm, I would be kind of interesting if there was some mysterious relative out there, but I think it's extremely unlikely. So I have not done that. Um, and uh, it, um, depending on your kind of life situation and history, I think uh, there are, you know, it, it seems like an interesting thing to do. I just haven't done it because I don't think there's anything to find. Um, and I, I get all these notifications saying, you have a possible third cousin who's recently joined the network type thing. I've never followed up on any of those because I, I figure by the time it's a, a possible third cousin, it's like whatever. The question here, do I fast? Do I do any other sort of modern longevity practices? Um, I, I try to be sensible. You know, I, I sleep, I walk, I don't eat ridiculous stuff. Um, I, uh, uh, you know, I, I take not a very bizarre or elaborate collection of uh, sort of supplementary type things. I have a good friend who's a medical researcher who told me, she told me, what was it? How long ago must it have been? 35 years ago, she said, you know, CoQ10. Q10 is going to be important. You should take Q10. So I've been taking that on her advice for 35 years um, and a few other things like that, but nothing very exotic. I, I have certainly looked at some of the more exotic things and I'm like, I'm not, I don't know. I could do that, but it's not, not really um, uh, a thing that seems important. I've, I've been, um, uh, I've been uh, kind of, um, uh, yeah, I think, I think the, you know, it's like I've, I've studied enough about my sort of medical situation that I kind of know a few glitches that I have, which I try to sort of deal with and have dealt with successfully. And I think everybody has some number of sort of medical, you know, outside the normal range type things. I mean, like, like for me, I have things sort of that are outside the normal range. And it's like, well, what is this? Is this a sign of something terrible or not? And some of them I've dug quite deep into the basic science and concluded, well, I'm just outside the normal range because that's the way statistics works. Sometimes once outside the normal range, I'm probably outside the normal range in various things that aren't blood levels of X, Y, and Z. Um, and, you know, so I'm outside the normal range. And uh, unless there's some sort of theoretical reason why that's going to be bad for me, I'm just not going to worry about it. 
but it's worth knowing those things. And it's also worth knowing, you know, I, I make sure I've, I've got sort of the time series of medical test results for uh, more than 30 years now. And that's really useful because when somebody says, oh, you've got this high level of this or this low level of this, it's like, well, actually, I've had the exact same level of that for the last 30 years. Thank you very much. And it's all good. So, you know, that, that's, that's helpful, I would say. Um, I think uh, in terms of sort of knowing myself and figuring things out, there's one study I'm just about to do. So as the world sort of wakes up again and I start going off and, you know, doing things in person and all that and traveling a bit and, and so on, I want to know of the times that I've been sick, what, where did I catch whatever I got? And um, the, you know, I, I think there have been in the probably 20 years that I have pretty good data on this. Maybe it's longer, maybe 30 years I have data on this. I'm, I'm just sort of uh, initiated the project of correlating the when was I sick? And of course, I have the data. I measure my fever and so on level. And I, so I've got all those plots. And I also can probably deduce when I was sick from when my uh, kind of either I was sick or my uh, fitness tracker device was sick if the, if the uh, sort of steps went down to close to zero or something. But in any case, so, you know, tracking those things, maybe I don't get sick terribly often, I'm happy to say. So maybe once every 18 months or something, I'll get some virus of some kind. And I'm, I'm one of these people who, once I'm sick, I run a really high fever. So it's really obvious that I'm sick, so to speak. Um, the, uh, I've always thought that's like the, uh, uh, my, my body making it uh, un- unfriendly for viruses, so I'm not complaining about that. I'm not sure if that's really true. But in any case, the, uh, uh, so what I, what I want to do is to just answer the question, what causes me to get sick? Do I just get sick kind of randomly because sort of some family member was sick and I got sick from them or something? Do I get sick because you know, when I've gone on a bunch of long plane flights and I'm all dehydrated and in the wrong time zone and all this kind of thing? Or do I get sick from going to just that sort of event that had a whole bunch of people packed into it? Or do I get sick from going to some dinner with one individual person and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I don't know the answer. So I was just going to do a little study and see if there was a clear signal there and um, find out uh, uh, find out whatever I could find out from that. I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll draw life conclusions once I know the, the actual data. I mean, I've, I've always been one of these people, probably for more than 30 years, I've, I've sort of gone around with one of those little things of hand sanitizer in my pocket. And before anybody worried about pandemics and so on, I always felt a bit guilty because I would like shake somebody's hand and then I'd stick my hand in my pocket and, and squirt hand sanitizer on it. And I always felt like that was, uh, I don't think I would have admitted to that. Um, in, a, in a public forum um, if, uh, if it hadn't been for the pandemic, so to speak. Um, but, uh, you know, I've always been a little bit in the, you know, why expose oneself to germs if one doesn't need to, so to speak. Um, yeah, so, so Dan Dane here is commenting, this year has been the least number of days of being sick. I haven't been, I haven't been sick at all since, since um, well, I actually kind of, went out of circulation, so to speak, in the fall of 2019. So pre-pandemic, because I was working very hard on this physics project of ours. And so I stopped traveling, stopped going to events and so on. So I was kind of pre-quarantined even before the quarantine started. And yeah, I haven't been sick since since then. Um, 
and uh, uh, so long may that continue. It's nice. Um, there's a question here from Spencer. How many days of straight work do I do on a single project in a week and on an average day? So, I mean, I, I, usually, uh, I usually start at 11 a.m. usually local time. Um, and that's because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a late sleeping character. And I usually, um, uh, fundamentally, I, I continue until 2 a.m. with a break for about two hours uh, around dinner time. That's usually my, my pattern of, of uh, sort of what I do in a day. Now, in terms of the actual different projects and so on, what I found is when I'm sitting and like writing stuff, I can go for about two hours, two and a half hours, something like that, sort of at a sitting, so to speak, of just concentrating on one thing and not getting up and pacing around. I find after that period of time, I need to, uh, maybe it's slightly shorter than that, I don't know, but that's, that's the typical for me if I'm really able to concentrate on something. And then I kind of have to like pace around and clear my brain in some, some way. The trick for me is, is uh, you know, if left to my own devices, I'll just guzzle food and have pieces of chocolate and all kinds of things like this. Um, it's like, I make sure those are, you know, downstairs from my office. It takes an actual walk to go and go and get those things. No food in the office type thing is, is one of my, one of my little principles there. And uh, uh, the, I think the thing, and I also tend to, the smaller the packages of food, you know, the little packaged pieces of chocolate and things, I'm sort of enough of a perfectionist that I'll, time, I'll typically finish anything I start to eat. So it's like if it's packaged up nice and small, I won't eat as much of it. And I, I have this weird habit, which I'm sure I've done on live streams to my embarrassment of take these little pieces of chocolate and I'll break them into really tiny pieces and sort of eat the tiny pieces one at a time. Um, because rather than guzzling the whole whole giant piece of chocolate at the same time, because it seems to have about as much positive effect on me uh, uh, to uh, each piece has each tiny piece has sort of the same positive effect as the whole thing would have. But uh, in the end, I eat less chocolate as a result, so to speak. But uh, I found, you know, the thing to avoid is the every time you have a break between meetings, projects, whatever, is like get up. Oh, I've got to go do something. Oh, I'm just going to wander and get another piece of food. And I have to admit, I'm not as um, I'm not as disciplined about that as I might be. But that's one of the things that I I found is like give yourself another destination other than the food is a good thing. Although I have not succeeded in that in the best possible way. Um, and, and and I usually uh, weekend days typically are the same as as weekdays for me. And and you know people say, oh my god, how can you work so much? Why aren't you doing more stuff for fun? Well. My work is fun as far as I'm concerned. That's why I do it. And uh, I've, um, so, you know, for me, I mean, there are things that I will sort of spin off as hobbies, like these live streams are an example of sort of a hobbyist activity for me. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, some people might say that's work. I, I don't think it's work, just as I don't think really designing computational languages is work as such. It's just something I do. I find it fun, and it also happens to be a productive thing. I think that in terms of sort of the pure recreational activities, I'm, I'm not so big on those. I mean, I, 
I typically, before the pandemic particularly, uh, my wife and I would typically go and see sort of one uh, um, uh, generic um, 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 uh, movie per week, good way to kind of stay vaguely in touch with um, uh, with sort of uh, general culture and so on. But like I never watch television ever. And I, I perhaps to my, uh, I, I don't read books particularly other than when I'm kind of reading them for content for things that I want to be able to, to do, so to speak. Um, so very boring at some level, but you know, I enjoy learning lots of new things and uh, I think I have a pretty good time, but um, uh, some of the things that people do sort of for recreation, I, I, I don't particularly do, and, but I consider the things that I'm doing as quotes, what other people might say work as recreational, so to speak. Um, let's see, you know, on this question about, you know, uh, the um, model longevity practices, so to speak, I think one of the things that is probably good for longevity, it certainly feels that way, is the thing that I just said, do stuff you think is fun. Don't do stuff where you're like, oh my gosh, this is so frustrating. Oh, it's so stressful, it's so terrible. You know, I do a lot of things that are intense. I like that. I don't find it kind of stressful as in, you know, I'm sure if you measured, and I have the data, you know, measured my heart rate or cortisol levels or whatever else, I doubt you would find kind of high stress profile for things that I do, even though they're quite intense. Um, just because, I don't know, they're intense, but they are, for me, satisfying things to do. And I think that that is probably a, I don't know, we don't know until, until it's over, so to speak, whether that turns out to be a good longevity strategy, so to speak, to not put yourself in situations where you're very kind of uh, stressed and it's like, I don't really want to be around. Uh, better to be in the, hey, I'm having a great time. Just give me more years of this type thing. I think that's probably a, a positive thing in terms of uh, longevity, at least that's my theory. Let's see. Um, so another one here, given a set of interesting ideas that require big effort to be developed, how do you prioritize which one to pursue? Yeah, that's an important issue for me. You know, there are ideas that I've had knocking around for decades where I say, this is a big, important idea. This is something that will be very significant. Okay, when should I pursue it? For me, it's actually useful to let the thing kind of grow into a bigger snowball over the course of years. I learn more, I run into people, I get sort of contextualization of the idea, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a very important thing is that sort of ambient technology and the ambient sort of structure of the world makes that idea often more and more viable. It's something where the ambient technology just didn't exist to do it 20 years ago, but now it does. And now I can get there. And had I started it 20 years ago, I would have spent, you know, eight years building ambient technology. Whereas if I start it now, it's like, okay, I'm good to just uh, just go from where that ambient technology is and start building from there. 
So for me, it's kind of the assessment of the ambient technology. Also, occasionally, although I have to say this happens remarkably rarely, there are things where I've said, I would like to do that sometime. And then eventually somebody else just does it. And then it's like, okay, it's been done. I'm not going to do that one now. I have to say, I'm actually a little bit hard pressed to even think of when that's happened. That's a little bit depressing because it's kind of like, I'm thinking about these things that are still far away in the future, so to speak. And I'm thinking about things that are often a different prong from the places that other people have been thinking. But anyway, one of the important things is, is there sort of an ambient technology base, an ambient set of things in the world that make this possible, a set of things where, uh, you know, if, I, if I'd been thinking about doing kind of this live streaming activity 20 years ago, it's like, well, there wasn't really a venue for that um, at that time. There wasn't a mechanism in the world for doing this. And so it's something where, you know, just wait until there is a, this particular case that that's not really a thing that I thought about. Another thing that happens is, do I have the right people to work with me on such and such a thing? Sometimes there'll be a project. In fact, this happened with our physics project, two young physicists who sort of arrived at the right time and were like, we really want to work on this. And it's like, okay, great then that's okay. It's a good, good enough time in my life. And I was thinking of doing it anyway. And let's, let's roll, so to speak. But um, I think that the, um, uh, uh, you know, and there are times when it's like, uh, sometimes there are things where the people to do something kind of drop in one's lap, so to speak. And that induces one, it kind of uh, gives one an extra push to do something at one time rather than another. And sometimes it's like, uh, well, I'll just wait and I'll looking around for people relevant to that and, and so on. And sometimes it's just like, I'm going to do this now. Let me put together a team. Let me just go find the people to do it. So, I mean, that's... Um, uh, yeah, that, that's... Um, uh, that? I, I see so many interesting questions here. Here's, how did or would I balance ambitious technology projects with dating. Well, let's see, I've been married now for, what is it, 27 years or something? So I've been out of the dating scene for a while. And uh, I have to say, okay, this is a piece of personal history that is sort of amusing, is, uh, you know, I was in the quotes dating scene when I was younger. And at some point I, I had, you know, I had a pretty good network of people. I knew lots of people and people would, uh, say, oh, can you introduce me to somebody? Actually, people still say this from time to time. You know, can you introduce me, you know, for a date, so to speak, to somebody? And, uh, you know, can, do you have anybody you can suggest? And I, I have to say, I'm, I'm responsible for, let's see, at least three long-term marriages where I introduced the people. Um, so that's, uh, I consider that a, a, a good thing to have contributed. Um, and probably... Uh, uh, implicit, well, our company is responsible for many, many more than that. Um, and, but that's, that's not my fault, so to speak. Um, in, um, I think, uh, uh, in, um, uh, so at some point I was, um, um, uh, I had this idea, this was in 19, when was this? This must have been 1989 or so. Uh, I had this idea, which was encouraged by, by a bunch of people I knew, um, the, uh, um, of um, 
um, uh, you know, start a, a, a sort of a, a list for introducing people. So I had this whole thing that I had planned. It was actually going to be called The List. And it had a whole, whole scheme that um, was uh, about sort of profiles of people and so on and so on and so on. Um, and I thought, uh, and this was a um, um, kind of a, uh, a um, um, uh, I, was, I was almost ready to launch this. And then I met the person who I've been married to for a long time now. So, so I was kind of out of that market and my various friends were like, you really should do this. You really should do this. We really need this. But I never did it. Um, and uh, uh, probably, um, I, I don't know uh, how anything would have been different. But in answer to your question about, um, um, uh, you know, I don't think I'm, I'm any kind of expert at these kinds of things. I have to say, I was once, I think I wrote about this once, I, I happened to see Steve Jobs one, one day and um, this was back in, oh gosh, when was this? This must have been, when was it? It must have been 1990, early 90s sometime. It's, it's easy to date actually, by thinking about other things that were happening. And I was, uh, I was yeah, it was when Next, his company Next was in Redwood City. And I'm, I'm, um, uh, I'm kind of, um, uh, I am, uh, you know, we're talking about all kinds of technology things. And he says, you know, I'm really very distracted because uh, I'm going to go on this date because I just met this, this, this wonderful woman, you know, at some event a few days earlier. And so uh, we end up, he ends up asking me all kinds of sort of dating advice. And then like, I, I, you know, I'm like, I don't think I'm the right person to, to provide this. I don't really know anything about this, but it was sort of an amusing conversation. And actually, I'm, I think the, the good news about that story was the, the person he was going to see that evening was the person uh, he ended up marrying and, and, uh, uh, and, and uh, everybody lived for, for a while, at least happily ever after. I think um, um, the, uh, all right, we should wrap up soon before I, um, so I don't have a good answer to your question. I think it depends on one's, um, uh, 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 you know, I, I, for me, the, um, uh, I'm, I'm sort of, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't have a good answer to the question. I'm, uh, in, in terms of, um, 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 Let's see, there's a question here, a very pragmatic question about our um, um, technology. What's the practical difference between Wolfram Desktop and Mathematica? Um, if the difference is negligible, why are we having sort of the branding confusion here? The reason is, is so we have tried to move away from the Mathematica name for our more general kind of computational language and computational uh, products. Because Mathematica is a wonderful name, but it's actually, strangely enough, it's a name Steve Jobs encouraged me, since I was just talking about Steve Jobs, encouraged me to, to, um, uh, to use. Um, and uh, back when we first made a deal with, with Steve to, for him to bundle Mathematica on the as yet unreleased next computer back a long time ago. So 
anyway, then then um, uh, the problem with the name Mathematica is it's a lovely name for anybody who thinks that they want to do things related to math. But so much of what we do is really just about computation and not about math. And it, the name sort of became a liability for us. Now, back 35 years ago, when we picked that name, it was not clear to me what the future of what people call math versus the future of what people call computation was going to be. As it turned out, math really pretty divorced itself, at least for those years. Maybe it will come back in future years from sort of the computation idea. And so this notion of will math generalize itself to be about sort of all algorithmic things didn't really happen. And so sort of there's this increasing divide and an increasing tendency for people to say, oh, there's this thing called mathematical. Oh, it does math. I don't do math, so I don't care about it. So what we've been doing is sort of really moving the branding over to Wolfram Language and Wolfram Desktop, which is our mixed cloud and desktop product and so on, and really leaving the Mathematica brand, which is a strong brand, as the thing that is the brand that people think it means, you know, in terms of technical computing and mathematical computation and so on, and really building in, in another direction with our uh, kind of main Wolfram brand. And we sort of started that process with Wolfram Alpha. Uh, when that came out in 2009, I made the very conscious decision to brand that as a Wolfram branded thing. See, one of the things about putting a name of a person on things or the name of a company on things is in a sense, it's a meaningless word. You know, okay, it happens to be derived from my name, but in some sense, it's a meaningless word. Um, and so it, it is, the product is defined by the product itself rather than by what you thought the product was based on the name you heard for the product. So, you know, you hear the name Mathematica, you know, no doubt one could do a whole campaign to say math isn't just math type thing, but it's an uphill battle. Whereas if you're dealing with a meaningless word, like just the name Wolfram, for example, that you don't have that sort of uphill uh, de-education type battle to fight. And for example, with Wolfram Alpha, my sort of calculation was, we'll give it a name where it's kind of a Wolfram branded thing, but it has sort of a, a twist, a curlicue to the name, but that second name isn't so strong that you end up just calling the product by that second name. So that it ends up being, you know, it's not, you can't really call something, you're not gonna call something just alpha because that's too generic. But Wolfram Alpha together, it's kind of giving you a definite branding for that thing, but it's a branding where kind of the, the main brand is kind of burnt into the sub-brand for that particular product. And so kind of our, our goal from time of Wolfram Alpha uh, and, uh, and beyond has been to really center on the Wolfram brand because that's the brand that we think can effectively communicate what we have in terms of Wolfram language and sort of computational language and the whole story going forward, rather than people getting sort of fixated on the idea of, oh, but don't you just do math? Um, so uh, that's, that's kind of the story of that. Um, it's, uh, um, <laughs> Aaron, people are saying, bring the list out of hibernation. I'm the wrong, I'm a, I'm a, a middle-aged fuddy-duddy at this point. I'm not the, um, 
the twenty-something-year-old with with lots of uh, uh, crisp, youthful ideas about that. Um, it's, uh, um, I think, um, 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 it, it um, uh, you know, it's it's a funny thing because we're just thinking about doing some rather consumer things in connection with NFTs, um, and uh, it it's kind of. Uh, you know, at various times in my life, I have I have uh, sort of considered doing some rather consumer things. Uh, we've had, uh, for example, we did this Wolfram Tones thing back in 2007 or so, um, maybe 2005, maybe I can't remember, which was sort of playing into the, the cell phone ringtone craze where uh, people were like, you know, generate a custom ringtone. And for me, it was like I'd be in some public place and a cell phone would ring and I would not know if it was my cell phone or somebody else's cell phone. It's like, for goodness sake, get me a custom ringtone. And, and since I've worked on a bunch of science that leads to algorithmic music composition, I was like, surely we can make something which does algorithmic music composition and everybody can get a completely custom ringtone. And that was an amusing idea and it was a good, good concept. And then the distribution channel for that, which ended up going through cell phone carriers was disastrously difficult. And so we built the technology in a few weeks, I think. And then for six months, we were like, oh, we're going to sell this through cell phone carriers. And that was just horrific. And then when we finally brought the thing out as sort of a consumer thing, it got some sort of PR visibility, but it was absolutely dead, as, dead on arrival in terms of an actual product that could actually be commercial success because the, the crest of that wave was long over. But in any case, at various times, I've thought about various kinds of more consumer oriented things, which I view, you know, we talk about uh, sort of what's fun and what's a hobby and what's work and so on. Some of these more consumer things are kind of just a fun hobby type thing for me. There was another one actually we considered about oh, 10, 12 years ago. We were interested a little bit more thematic. We were interested in um, uh, essentially making a social network for researchers and scientists and and so on. And uh, we almost got that one out and then decided that we were not, not going to do it because it's really uh, not, it was sort of a, a separate kind of activity. Um, but uh, now we're, we're considering one uh, sort of consumer NFT thing, which I think is really kind of interesting and fun. And uh, for me, it's a little weird because here I am thinking about fundamental theory of physics and I have a bunch of new ideas about sort of the foundations of, of, of programming languages and so on that I really want to explore. And uh, it's like, um, uh, it's kind of a, a, a very different set of activities thinking about a very consumer NFT story and a very kind of philosophically deep and technically deep story about you know, things like, why does the universe exist? I had a particularly nice week, um, oh, when was it? A couple of months ago, three month, two, three months ago now, when I was writing a piece about why does the universe exist, which is kind of a, a complicated story of science and philosophy and so on. And I had also had the feature that I had for various reasons of, of random reasons gotten into something where I needed to do a certain amount of cryptocurrency trading. And uh, partly because in the general theory of companies, it's like you have a company with, you know, in our case, about 800 people. And it's like people do lots of different things. And then at some point on some day, somebody needs to be trading cryptocurrency. And it's like, that's nobody's job right now. And, but it's urgent to do it. And so it's like, well, if nobody else can do it, okay. As, you know, as the CEO, I sort of pick up 
the interstitial pieces, and it was sort of interesting for me anyway. But so I had the rather rather curious experience of literally being, you know, people were asking about sort of concentration spans and so on, of literally, uh, you know, writing about and thinking about why does the universe exist, and then glancing over at a bunch of cryptocurrency trading screens and trying to see what to do with various kinds of things. Um, I think I think in the end both came out fairly well, so that was nice. Um, all right, I think I should, although there are some really terrific questions here, um, I think we have to save those for, um, oh, maybe I'll do one more. Okay, I'll do one more here, and then, then we should wrap up for today. Um, the, uh, oh, maybe two, there's one from Coda here on managing life. Does, does my family, get along with my working hours? Do they get enough of me? Do they you feel you spend enough time with them? I think my, my test for children, and I have four children, three of whom are kind of grown up at this point. Um, the, uh, my test is if, if, if they're telling me, oh, I don't want to spend more time with you, or I don't want to, you know, don't, don't, you know, I just want to go off and do my thing rather than, um, uh, then that's, a, that's sort of one of the tests for are you spending enough time? is are they telling you, oh, just, you know, I want to go off and do my thing um, rather than um, uh, them coming to you and saying, you know, uh, you know, I want to do this or that. So I, I, I think I, I think I done okay at that, I think. Um, maybe one day, I don't know whether it'll ever happen, whether I'll ever be able to get any of my kids to, to join me on one of these live streams and, and then um, uh, they, can, they can answer for themselves. Um, I think, um, uh, I think um, uh, um, I think it's fair to say my wife kind of knew what she was getting into um, uh, um, long, long ago. And I, I tend to, you know, I, I, I try to, and I actually do sort of break off a, a, a dinner time period every day when I'm, uh, again, sort of not, you know, don't have meetings and just sort of, uh, 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 that's, that's my interaction time, so to speak. So I, th I think in, um, I, I'd like to think that that has worked out fairly well. You know, it probably helps that I've worked at home and I haven't been commuting and those kinds of things. Um, it perhaps works, I think, um, uh, for my children particularly. I think it's fairly interesting for them to actually see the process of projects and so on happening. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I've certainly talked to them over the years about all sorts of things that I'm doing, and um, they will have many opinions. They've given much advice. Uh, I would say that um, it's always, I think, I get a certain, uh, you know, when they've told me that's a really stupid project, and it turns out it's okay after all. It really isn't as stupid as they thought it was. Um, that uh, I think is both educational and gives me a little bit of satisfaction of some kind. But um, a lot of the time, they're giving me uh, really good advice, um, particularly in these, these more recent years. Um, and that's, uh, that's always, always very nice as far as I'm concerned. Um, although it's sometimes I feel like um, uh, they will often say, well, we're doing things that are completely different from anything you've ever done. And um, then you'll discover that the apple has actually fallen much closer to the tree than you might expect. Um, but uh, anyway, that's, that's for another time and maybe, um, uh, maybe we'll, we'll see which of, which of my children would ever be prepared to, to do one of these. Um, it was a question, last question. 
what do I do when I get discouraged? Do I go for a walk, take a day off, work harder? And what causes discouragement? I don't think I've really taken a day off. Oh boy. I mean, the last true day off I probably took might be mm, 1983. I don't know. I can remember for a particular reason of um, uh, when I quit a job in 1983, I'm like, I'm not going to work for the next, but I don't think I really stuck to that actually, but um, I wasn't going to work on that particular thing. Uh, the, um, uh, I was a, I, I quit my faculty job and that was a very weird thing because that wasn't something people usually do. And that's another complicated story, but in any case, the, so I'm not a take days off type of person. And I've also found kind of what you sign up for in the CEOing business is you don't really get to take days off. You know, a few times I've like, I really should take a day off because I'm really kind of fed up. And then some issue will come up, some big thing will blow up, you know, a few hours into that day off, so to speak. And I'm like, no, I don't get to take a day off. And, uh, it, it, you know, it comes with the territory of CEOing. I don't think if you're going into that kind of world, don't expect to take a day off. It's, it, it won't work. And um, it's not really a responsible thing to say, oh, I'm just disappearing. You really, really can't reach me under any circumstances. Um, you know, you, you have, uh, at least in my theory of CEOing, there's, it's always got to be possible to, to reach you and so on, because some bizarre thing might happen where it really matters. Um, of course, there may be months that go by where nothing really happens that requires that sort of urgent, whatever it is. But, you know, I think my main thing when what discourages me uh, I don't know, there are, there are usually things where I'm one of these people where I, if things are under my control, even if it's very hard work, I'm just fine. When it's something where I'm dealing with some other organization or people, or I don't mind dealing with people, but, but when it's some kind of complicated sort of, oh, we got to get this to happen with some outside organization and this and that and the other, uh, you know, I try to stay away from those things. I try not to be at the front lines of those things. But that's something that, to me, can be kind of frustrating and uh, 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 sort of, in some sense, discouraging. Although I tend to just sort of say, I'm going to stay away from that. And I'm going to, uh, whatever happens, happens, so to speak. And so long as it's not disastrous, that's kind of okay. And it's a better calculation to stay away from it and lead a happier life than to be right in the middle in the trenches and maybe to have only a slightly better outcome. Maybe it'd be a worse outcome as well. But so um, I would say that the other things that can happen, well, okay, another thing is, you know, I do a bunch of research and um, sometimes it's just one is stuck. And I suppose what I do when I'm stuck is I try and work out something definite. You know, when one gets stuck, it's usually conceptually stuck. It's usually, I just can't figure out how to make progress on this particular thing. Like, like oh, I've been thinking about economics recently. I've been thinking about some things to do with uh, this new way of thinking about distributed computing and so on. Both of those things, I feel like I'm a little bit stuck. Um, but, you know, for me, in those areas, it's like, well, I can read some stuff other people have written in some, in some cases, or I can just work out some definite concrete thing 
even though it's it's just at a, a corner of the of the thing that I'm really stuck on, and that's a um, uh, um, that's kind of a uh, um, a um, um, uh, you know that that that's kind of a, a way forward, and I think it really helps that for me in in doing research and things like that. And I, I, producing something concrete is always a way forward, whether it's something where you need to write something down and, you know, let me write an explanation of how I've, where I've got so far. Let me write a piece of code that does this or that thing um, to, to make progress. Um, those are, those are always things that help. And uh, um, I am really late for something else I'm supposed to do. And I explained that I have a, a scheduled life and I'm now 12 minutes late for something so I had better run off. But um, thanks for all the interesting questions and uh, see you all another time. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.